0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Arnie Dia Show. Today's show is brought to you by Relentless Optimism. And on today's show, I speak to Seth Brammer. Seth is a food and beverage specialist who operates out of Dallas, who, with his work through Slow Food DFW and Shift Dallas, is trying to both help the service industry survive this pandemic and help the food industry as a whole become more sustainable. I talk about a lot of things and it's a really great conversation. I really hope you enjoy. Um, but before we get started, I do want to shine a light on Lebanon, an incredibly disastrous thing that happened. If you would like to help, I will be linking at least three separate ways that you can help the people of Lebanon. Please enjoy the podcast. I've got a lot of really cool things planned for the next couple of days. I've got another help video as well with some more Dallas resources and A few more interviews, hopefully, if I can get them in the coming weeks. Thanks for watching, guys. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching this video. Today, I actually have a guest. Um, His name is Seth. Uh, He is a food and beverage specialist operating out of Dallas who, through organizations like Shift Dallas and Slow Food DFW, is trying to help both give information to the people in the industry and trying to help the industry itself become more sustainable. Um, Seth, please, would you introduce yourself to the fine people?
1: Yeah, of course. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. Um, This should be fun. You know, when when you reached out and asked if I wanted to come on and talk about food business and the food systems and... You know, COVID and all that, it's like, yeah, that's uh, that's my jam. So thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, like you said, my name is Seth Brammer. I'm from the Dallas area. I've lived here for a long time and uh, I've been doing food and beverage projects and kind of really had wanted to be in the restaurant business since I was a teenager and uh, have done that basically my entire career and um, really right before COVID uh, was happening. I was getting to a point where I was about to start opening a restaurant with my business partner. At that time, I was teaching uh, at Dallas College in, in downtown Dallas and their culinary school, running the beverage management program there. My business partner was a chef and he was working uh, working there as well. We we're doing all these dinners and parties and openings and events and all this different stuff. And then COVID hit and we realized that the trajectory that we had been on um, as sort of you know, like young budding restaurateurs, really didn't make any sense in that moment, and so um, you know I decided to create Shift to Dallas right then. Essentially, it was, I guess, kind of um, you know right in April, um, and right when everybody was kind of getting laid off and everything was going crazy, and right when you know people began to really start taking it seriously, essentially. Um, right. And we put a group of people together, kind of not knowing exactly uh, what we wanted to do, but we knew that we wanted to help people. And we ended up putting together a group of people that ended up being um, a lot of communications folks. And yeah. you know, one of the things that's really cool f- about the restaurant business is there's a lot of people in it that, you know, work in all sorts of different areas. You know, there's a lot of people that are doing it as a second job, or you know, they they just sort of do it because they like it, but their real passion is something else. You know. Yeah. And so we we were able to tap into a lot of talent really early. And essentially took that and created a platform where we could just get information out to people, and that ended up being our main goal uh, throughout the summer was just to provide as much information as we could for folks um, and make them just sort of aware of what was available. There was a lot of different nonprofit stuff popping up here and there, and like there's a lot of people giving away food and sort of making things, um, you know, available for folks, and we just wanted to kind of like help. Amplify all the goodness that was going on. So, you know, I focused on that pretty heavily for about three months this summer and near I guess about about six weeks ago we sort of decided that because Texas was barreling back into this um, reopening stage that we really needed to recalculate where we were going to take shift and how we could actually help people sort of in this new reality and so I've been spending the rest of the summer really focused on that and um, kind of creating different ideas and um, different businesses that are sort of appropriate for this new age that we're, that we're moving into. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you, know, kind of touching back on some of the things that I do in my past of you know doing events and doing a lot of education in the field and trying to like you know empower people in the service industry, really want to start creating platforms and frameworks for people to, um, you know actually like, access some of the resources but really you know take steps for themselves to start fixing the business right so that's kind yeah. of the that's kind of the dream there so for me you know as a as a food and beverage guy I started as a chef you know I went to I went to culinary school on the East Coast and spent a bunch of money and did all that and yeah. then somehow ended up in the in the front of the house doing doing bar stuff and did that for a long time and now and now yeah. I mostly consult on restaurants and uh, and consult with with Projects that are kind of in the space of, uh, of people that deal with food and beverage and service and, and mostly education, I think, is, is really where I end up most of the time. So a man of a lot of hats, I think.
0: For sure. Uh, I was looking you up and you do have, you have many projects. I feel like you have a lot of things going on kind of all at once, but they are all really geared towards the service industry as a whole. And really, kind of uh, bringing it to the next level, I think, is really what your work at least stands out to me. Looks like what you're trying to do, right? Um, you know, uh, um, I started off as a uh, um, uh, an expo, right? That was where I like very, very first started. So I was in the I was in the back of the house, brunch shifts, going through all that, and then I eventually worked my way up to work uh, on the floor as a waiter. Um, and I and then the one thing that I, that I the, the education that I got from the industry becoming, making that transition was, A, uh, it is an industry you can move up in. You know, that's not something mm-hmm. that you can do a lot, a, in a lot in a lot of industries in the country now. But B, I, 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 I grew to admire and, and really uh, uh, come to understand the artistry and the work that goes behind all these things, um, and I, I, really wanted to get you on here because uh, I feel like like you are really in tune to both things, right? Uh, the heartbeat of the industry and what it's doing, but also trying to kind of grasp what the industry needs to do to kind of shift and change into like what it needs to be in the coming future, uh, what the you know what the new future looks like of the industry, and I think um a good way to kind of kind of sidestep into that is uh, is talk about some of the things that you're doing with, uh, so Soul Food DFW, right? Um, that organization, if you would please talk about a little bit of what they do and your work that you're doing yeah, for them. Sure. Yeah, sure.
1: So Soul Food is a movement really that started in Italy. Actually, it's a, it's a cool story. Back in the 70s, the first McDonald's was gonna come into Rome and Romans got pissed and yeah. they went out into the streets and they threw this amazing dinner essentially that lasted for like three days. And it was this crazy, amazing protest that only Italian people could pull off. And of course, the McDonald's yeah. got built anyway, but they continued yeah. on this tradition. And the idea was like, well, they're doing fast food. This, Our people like slow food, right? Yeah. And so that's really the whole idea, is that um, you know it started from this sort of pushing back against the way that the food business had been going. In modern times, it's a global movement, and so we've got chapters in every state in the country. It's all over the world, and here, you know, DFW, we've got a chapter. We've got state representation. You know, there's folks in Austin and Houston, and and they're everywhere. And, you know, generally speaking, the mission for slow food uh, is centered around three really easy to understand kind of concepts, and it's good, clean, and fair. And we apply that to food. But we also sort of apply that to everything that goes around the food. So the folks that work in the business, and you know how the food is treated, and the animals, and you know the way that they're grown, but also sort of like the authenticity of it, and if it's sort of doing it in a respectful way. You know, if you're using ingredients that make sense, if you're if you're treating things seasonal, those are really the the tenets of it. And so it's an organization, but it's really a, a philosophy essentially that the food that we should be eating. Um, you know, should be from the earth, should be good for you and, and should be doing good things in the business, essentially, like it should be good for other people. And so, um, you know, locally, the Slow Food DFW chapter has been around for a long time. And it's, it's kind of absorbed a couple different groups through the years. And um, it's never really been super big. You know, slow food for a lot of people has meant potlucks and sort of like wine and cheese events. And that's really been what it's been for a long time, actually. And now that there's a lot of young folks that are in the food business that are really, you know, aggressively trying to change things, um, you're starting to see a lot of change in organizations like slow food. And so, you know this year i decided to step into the fray a little bit with those guys because i'm really good friends with the chair uh amanda van hoosier who was actually the founder of the coppel farmers market uh one of the founders of that and helped organize the whole thing it's still a volunteer run farmers market totally amazing she also founded the coppel um, community gardens and also still totally volunteer run community gardens um, worked as a, a director for the you know dallas farmers market for years and years helped you know, run Profound Foods, which is amazing, like, farm to table initiative, where they they basically will take farm food and deliver it to your house. They used to only do to chefs. Now they do it to your house because of COVID. They're making yeah. even more money. Yeah. Totally amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. so there's these just amazing people that I've met, you know, being able to hang out on farms. And so I was talking to Amanda, who now primarily has a flower farm, and that's what she does. She does cut-grown flowers with local varieties, essentially, that, that grow really well here and sells them at the farmer's market. and. just it's just amazing i mean really really beautiful stuff and i was talking to her about slow food and sort of what it could do and i've always really seen it as this as this network of folks that you know we all know everybody in the business essentially all of the folks that are kind of interested in changing you know how food gets to the table and what we eat and where it comes from are sort of involved and so we've got this really amazing brain trust and so you know, at the same time, I was doing this interview show uh, for Shift, and you know, Amanda was like, "Hey, could we do something similar for Slow Food?" So we created the Slow Food Lunch Break, and it's essentially a half hour to an hour long conversation, uh, just with folks that are in Slow Food, that are interested in sort of sharing the message of, um, you know, what is already here. It's really an answer to the question that we get constantly when people find out how cool the food scene actually is here in Dallas. This is sort of like my life, essentially, is people like, oh my god, I had no idea. And I say, well, (laughs) let me tell you about all this shit that we have going on here. There's (laughs) all this amazing stuff. And so now we just created this platform, essentially, that does that for us. And so now it's like, oh, we'll just go look at that, and you get to see all these amazing people every week. Super cool. So it's been a fun, engaging kind of um, kind of small project, but it was really a way for us to kick off the football, to get to a place where like that organization is really at the forefront of the the connectivity. Of the people in the food business, whether that's consumers or folks in the business business, but like folks that are actually trying to make changes. And hopefully yeah. with that, you know with that network as we grow it, we'll be able to push for things like policy change. We'll be able to push for things like, you know, if we want to change the way farmers' markets operate. Well, if enough people yeah. get involved with that, it's actually fairly easy to do anything you want in a city. I mean, shockingly. So I think it really, you know, for slow food, it's really about that. And so the first project was lunch break. Um, And we're working on sort of um, the next stages essentially for Slow Food DFW. We're really working a lot on trying to, to get it to feel more modern and more approachable for young people that want to help change Dallas essentially. Folks that want to get out there and put their hands in the dirt and are really interested in, you know, maybe installing community gardens or working in school gardens or volunteering at farms, stuff like that. And we're trying to basically build a platform that would facilitate uh, folks being able to do that and, you know, and the folks that are looking for that kind of help to to be able to find it, you know, really bringing the community together. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like for Dallas, we're only as strong as people know that we are. So if you're yeah. doing something anonymously, it really doesn't matter how cool it is. Um, and it's a blessing that we live in this age because it's so easy yeah. to, you know, to tell everybody what you're doing, right? And so that's kind of what what I'm working on right now is just it's just sort of helping them, you know, spin into this next version where we can we can sort of build a bigger, uh, you know, an army of change makers, I guess, in Dallas.
0: For sure, and I'd imagine that this, uh, you know, this this network that you've developed is probably a really good conduit for ideas to form themselves as well. Uh, I, I do see that that kind of thing happens when a lot of people, you know, a lot of, when a lot of heads get together and just kind of brainstorm things. I'd imagine that you guys probably, you know, already have thought of things uh, about slow food that might change. The way that the entire industry is uh, is moving to, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I understand. Like, uh, uh, there's a, one of the biggest issues that was going on during um, the earlier parts of the pandemic. Uh, you know, the food shortages and the fact that um, there there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, you know agriculture and a lot of food, a lot of milk, a lot of a lot of just pe- all kinds of protein that were just being discarded because they uh, because essentially the apparatus was not there to deliver the food directly to the store it had to go through an, an intermediary right that needed mm-hmm. to purchase the food have the food packaged and then it would be taken into the stores right i'd imagine maybe um, like breaking that 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 second crux is probably a big deal or like maybe um, like i don't know if you guys have ever talked about uh, like a, a bigger way or an easier way for you know the farm to make it to the to the store and the market quicker right
1: or, or yeah, something yeah. Things like
0: that I, I, yeah, I, imagine. I mean,
1: you're you're touching on sort of the the real secret sauce, essentially, of like what everybody's got on their mind. Of like, how do we move from a place where um, everybody's going to the grocery store or they're going to restaurants and they're essentially eating the same foods over and over and over and over and over again? You know, America's, yeah. Americans as a culture, you know, I mean, we eat a lot of different foods, but not really. You yeah, know, so we're we're fairly we're fairly narrow. And the problem is is that as we move to a place where we're trying to be a little bit more um, you know, we, we don't like monocultures, right? We don't want to plant all sorts of different things because that's better for right. sustain sustaining ecology, essentially. We don't right. want structural collapse of different, you know, plants, right? I mean, I'm sure you've heard about bananas. At one point, all the bananas were wiped out, and then we had to reinvent yeah. new bananas that were resistant. Now we have the Cavendish, and at some point yeah. it will be wiped out as well. Because it's an aggressive monoculture, right? So that's a problem everywhere. When you start doing these things locally, though, um, you know it's easy to talk about the national stuff, like, well, you know, the big yeah. the big companies need to grow better stuff. They need better regulations, yeah. whatever, right? Okay, sure. But locally, you, then you really get into some weird issues. You know, I went to college in Rhode Island, and Rhode Island, obviously, smallest state, quite small indeed, but that- they're a very productive for food with farms. I mean, they have some decent farmland. You can you know, you know, can get chickens, you can get cows, you can get, you know, people grow wine out there, you can get blueberries, you can get all sorts of weird stuff in Rhode Island, they grow it. And it's got a climate that allows for a very specific thing to happen there where you can have an awesome farmer's market with fruits and vegetables and all this awesome stuff, and then the winter rolls around and it's beans and it's gourds and it's kale and yeah. that's it, right? Yeah. If you go to Texas, you come here in the summer, and we don't have a lot of fruit. You might get cantaloupe and watermelon, but you're not going to get, you know, we're not doing berries that much. Not really. Yeah. I mean, we get some strawberries. You know, Damascus Farms or strawberries every year. I had some this year. They're fantastic. We get peaches. But the problem is, is that Americans want everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have a grocery store, and the default model is, well, I could get everything there, then right. most people are just gonna go there. And I'm not right. one of these people that says that the customer is wrong for wanting what they want. They're not, they're they're totally right to want okay. yeah. this fantastically amazing wonderland of I can get anything I want instantly. Of course that's what they want. And yeah. you know, essentially the, the question then is like how do you either change what people want, okay that's like the you know, yeah. the base level question of marketing, yeah. right? Okay, that's tricky, but then the other one is how do you change what grows where? That's another solution. Or how do you change, you know, how do you become even more convenient? Or how do you become, uh, how does it confer more status upon you to do it a certain way, right? Like how can you manipulate essentially the way that people feel about doing these things, about changing the world in the way that you want, about asking for organic products. Now everybody and their dog asks if everything's organic, right? It's right, just a thing. Right. But that was just marketing, right? So we can do yeah. essentially the same thing, moving those things forward. And you know, I see the biggest roadblocks though being the fact that everybody else is rushing into this world of like drone delivery and mm. you know anything anywhere in the hyper connectedness and it's really, um, it really leaves local produce, local food, local restaurants, local quality, essentially. It leaves that um, to, to being a little bit too expensive, essentially, for most people, right? You know, yeah. And it's a little undervalued for most people, just yeah. because you'd probably rather go to Chick-fil-A or Whataburger, because it's really right. convenient, right? And yeah. so, you know, as a business, you know, we you got to think about this question on multiple levels because as a restaurant, it's an impossibly hard question, and as a as a consumer, you know, it's a hard question, and you're thinking like how do we how do we move the entire food system over, right? Well, then COVID hit.
0: Yeah. And you see <laughs> And yeah. you
1: see what happened with with the supply chain, right? So, to put it in perspective, in this area there's probably about I would say about 60 farms that are that are like chefs are going to be buying from these farms some of these farms would be like distributing into you know I'm talking like local like you could drive there it wouldn't be like ridiculous you know but things people they come out to farmers markets and stuff probably about 60 right it's not this massive number there's a couple micro farms here and there but then you kind of blow that up and you realize that most of the food in this country is coming from you know concentrated areas where all of the meat's coming from this one spot, you know, all of the almonds all are coming from California, all of the tomatoes are all coming from Florida or California, you know, all everything is all like stuck in one spot. And so basically what happened is when COVID hit and they shut all the restaurants down, all of the restaurant food essentially just stopped moving instantly. Yeah. And so there was just this huge stockpile of all this stuff that, wasn't going to go out to distributors. The distributors weren't selling anything to customers. Customers couldn't even pay their bills. Some of them. Yeah. And then in the opposite happened in grocery stores at the same time, essentially. So it stressed the system. In grocery stores, everybody ran out and bought everything instantly. And so your middleman distributor, who the reason why your grocery store is gonna use it is simply because it's too much work to deal with thousands of different farms across the country and thousands of different producers so you're just gonna buy it from somebody who does that for you and they specialize in that right and so really like where is the incentive for kroger essentially to start using a different distributor or where is the incentive structure for that distributor to even exist in the first place right the to explain how some of that may actually happen, you can look at a model of a company that started here in the DFW area, Profound Micro Farms. They started about five six years ago, growing just leafy green lettuce. You know, a one point four acre farm, very small. And then uh, Jeff Bedner, the farmer there, uh, decided to start another company called Profound Foods, because he had figured out the way into the really any market was to sell the best possible produce to chefs because they were the only people who were actually looking for amazing quality produce. Everybody else didn't really care. So he sold it to chefs and he built up this list of selling to like 60 different restaurants in Dallas. Then he started Profound Foods where he was buying food essentially as a distributor from other farms and ranchers around him so that he could deliver all of it at the same time. Essentially farmers helping farmers, right? Yeah. Well, eventually, somebody like that could get big enough to start selling to people, right? Well, yeah. what happened was during COVID, his sales hit the ground instantly because he only sold to restaurants. Yeah. Within like two weeks, they flipped the entire business model and went to retail and then doubled their sales perspective wow. for that month. From wow. like, I mean, literally like the chart is like this. It's like, yeah. like that. It goes all yeah. the way down and then it goes yeah. doubles, right? Wow. And that was from allowing the high-quality food now to be available to consumers. So now you might think, okay, well, is it because the people had been eating the high-quality food in the restaurants, and now they missed it, and now they want it in their home? Or is it something weirder, which is that the people in their homes were afraid to go to the grocery store, and they wanted to know that the products that they were bringing into their homes were the highest quality and the least touched and the least manipulated by the big machine that they couldn't see but instead were being taken care of by normal people with faces on the internet yeah and they doubled yeah. in sales so but how do you do that for everybody that's yeah
0: that's definitely i mean i i actually think i know profound foods they sell foods out of uh, community am i wrong am i right about that yeah community yeah they did they've company? done yeah. some
1: pickups at, at community and um you know they do a they did a grocery bag thing actually there as well, where they um, heard that foundation, which is an awesome uh, foundation that essentially helps. They've been feeding a ton of people this summer essentially, and then before that, they were mostly working on healthcare issues, trying to get service industry workers healthcare. And I think they're kind of switching back more into that role um, and still feeding a bunch of people. And for a little while, they're giving away profound foods bags essentially full of all this awesome farm food yeah. to different uh, to people in the service industry for free essentially, pretty cool. So yeah, it's like a lot of, a lot of good people that like each other.
0: Yeah, um, you know, uh, it, the, that, that model shift uh, to me kind of signifies a, a bigger shift in our economy. And I think the pandemic has definitely highlighted the, the weaknesses of the older system um, and the strengths of the newer emerging system, which is emboldened by the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you have, um, essentially the, the internet has democratized a lot of, I think, um, you know, me, uh, not just uh, advertising, but media in general, right? Um, and uh, I think, like, a big example is the gig economy, right? Uh, so the gig economy is 100% completely, uh, like, it, its infrastructure is on the internet, and it is completely based on giving people work who are going to only be independent contractors, Right. Mm-hmm. Not having to go through an interview, not having to go through a face a face up interview, not having to dress up, put a bow tie. They just sign up on the internet, and depending on which service, you're either going to get a card in the mail or you go pick up a card. But you're like you're good to go, right? Um, and I, it's interesting to me that uh, like Profound Foods, they had the apparatus to make that shift, right? To make it uh, as quickly as they could in the moment, yeah. Which is really, which is really like the biggest problem for a lot of these older institutions, right? They can't Just really definitely. make <laughs> that shift. They can't make that shift in a timely manner, right? Um, and I, I think uh, the, the work you're doing with, with uh, Slow Food definitely highlights what I think is is the growth of that newer apparatus that is coming around and, and making sure that, you know, uh, small farmers into themselves are getting into these networks. Right, these little communities of of farmers coming together to help each other, but also help their kind of little macro industry uh, in of itself. Right, um, and I wonder what do do you think? I like I know that this is a, a macro question about a broad kind of thing, but do you think uh, like I, I, there is there is a world where uh, the market share of smaller farms becomes larger because of this kind of growing social storm coming or like at least you know the growth of the the apparatus behind these kind of uh, smaller organizations kind of growing and having more more of these uh, you know farmers together but people like you going into that community as well connecting those people it's in i think it's a it's an interesting idea to think that maybe there's a day where i don't know maybe 50 percent of the market share is held by farmers instead of you know like like what is it like Ten, probably now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah,
1: paltry for sure. Um, yeah, I think so. I think that it's going to require a couple of things, right? I mean, you know, yeah. some of the big problems here is that we're we're working with with competing values sometimes, right? So so some things always hold true. One is that smaller is always going to be faster, right? Yeah. But then the other thing that holds true is that bigger is usually safer. And so mm. if you've got a farm. Mm-hmm. And you've got all this land, and you're growing a massive amount of stuff, and you're able to, you know, you're able to command a huge market share. You've got a lot of money, right, coming in cash flow. Then you can access a lot of cash, and then, you know, labor is still cheap either way, right? If you're yeah. very very small, then essentially it's very very hard to to really make any money. Here's a great example: if you go to a grocery store and you buy a whole chicken, mm. um, a whole chicken is going to cost you anywhere from like I don't know, maybe two dollars and fifty cents up to like it could be you now it's of a nice chicken, you know, we're talking money yeah. money, but I'm just talking commodity yeah. bird, right? It's gonna be like yeah. five bucks, six bucks. Yeah. It's cheap. But if you talk to a chicken farmer who buys the same chicks, essentially, as like a Tyson, right? Yeah, um, who uses a better feed, okay, but you know, lets them actually run around, takes care of them, does the right amount of them typically for a farmer like that who you know can just manage uh, one or two people's worth of animals kind of you know manageable sort of business you know yeah. you need to sell those birds for somewhere around like 15 bucks
0: mm-hmm.
1: to the distributor yeah. not not to the customer right but like to the distribution model and it's very very hard to see how to Square that circle sometimes for people. So some of the creative things that are coming about that are making this easier are stuff like co-ops, right? Because we've got small and fast, right, and we've got big gotcha. and safe. Well, what if we can put yeah. them together, right? Yeah, <laughs> that would yeah. be something, right? So, you for know, I sure. was speaking to uh, a woman yesterday. That's a rancher, and I was actually on the lunch break, and I uh, was slow food, and we had a panelist of three different women that are all in agriculture. And she was talking about her farm where she, uh, she grows cattle. And the idea is, is that she couldn't actually produce as much meat as she needed to. She couldn't go fast enough because she didn't have uh, the manpower. She didn't have the tractor. She didn't have the capital to make it happen. And so she was sort of in this awkward growth stage, which happens to a lot of small businesses when they yeah. can't access money, right? Yeah. And when you're in cattle farming, your money is tied up in that animal over there for some time, right? I mean, it's like, you know, it's kind of a big deal. And so she went and found two other ranchers, one with a bunch of land, somebody with a big tractor, they put it together in a co-op, and now the tractor comes around and makes hay for everybody. And the cows can graze on the big pasture and they can do it all together. And they end up sharing all of these resources and they end up getting to a place where they're all making way more money this way than they would ever by themselves. Yeah. So it's an awesome deal for everybody. They love it. So how do you take that idea and start applying it out kind of to more things? gets challenging, right? Because if you're doing yeah. three people, well, you know, everybody's friends, everything's cool. But if we start yeah. talking about larger organizations of folks, that's when you start like, it's basically an HOA, right? You know, and like if you're getting into a big organization, (laughs) things are really challenging. And I think this is why, traditionally speaking, the competitive capitalist model of lobby for lower regulations, lobby for a way for us to make more money by doing less work, essentially, and then figure out how to increase productivity has always won because like that's what we're competing on, essentially, is capital acquisition. If we're competing as a society on something else, perhaps on our ability to cooperate and provide food for everybody at a reasonable price, then we're in a whole different ballgame. Now, again, we get into these weird challenges. In a way, in a hyper-capitalist system, it's unethical to try to provide extremely high-quality food for everybody at a really low price, because isn't that what restaurants do? Right. I mean, it's like, Mm -hmm. how do you take that away from from the capitalists and move it over into the place where everybody's like, you know what? everybody should have really great food all the time. Everybody should have farm food, right? I mean, wouldn't that be nice? But I think that honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, it's very, very hard to imagine how to get there because I don't think that people really want to spend the amount of time that it would take out on a farm, you know, you'd have to volunteer and go work on a farm, that's just real, you know, somebody has to do it. Or we'd have to invest just a ton of money into all sorts of really cool structural things that would allow us to do it, right? You know, you can grow stuff vertically, we can have aquaponics and grow fish and, you know, vegetables at the same time. But making a lot of people happy is really, really hard. So I think that if we're honest with ourselves, unless there's some big change in the way that the world organizes itself I think that we're looking more at the small competitive disruptive things and I think that's where your uber comparison and the gig economy comparison starts to make way more sense it's like okay the problem is that folks can't cooperate with each other. And if we try to put everybody into one box where this grocery store is for everyone, well, that never works, right? So it doesn't, you know, that's not the, Mm. as a product strategy, you can't get everybody. And so we can't really solve the food system until we're making an offer that kind of works for everybody. But certain businesses have a value prop that's more about the what than the who, I think Uber is a pretty good one. It's like the car comes to you, you get into it, and it takes you somewhere. It doesn't really matter who you are. Um, obviously, they do have a demographic, let, let's be real, but the thing is is that their service is really, really easy to access for anybody because everybody needs it. And yeah. the reason why is that it's completely custom to that moment, essentially. you yeah. know, Wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody yeah. over here that wanted to drive me over there? and then that works. And so the way that you could look at it for food, and this is what I've begun to start to think about, you know, is like, how can you say, well, I wanna know more farmers. Well, I get this question all the time, right? People are like, I wanna know farmers, because every time I talk about food and stuff, people are like, well, you need to go meet your farmer. <laughs> well, how do I do that? Yeah. We always say, well, you go to, you call them up on the phone. Well, good luck getting a farmer on the phone. Or you go to the farmers market. Well, they're busy trying to sell vegetables. Like this is an intimidating yeah. thing for people. Yeah. So, huh? Okay, that's an easy innovation, right? So there's a little things along the way that could be offered into the market by upstart capitalists, right? That have the information, right? Somebody that would know, well, what do they sell? Where do they sell it? Who do they sell it to? Right? And you could yeah. create
0: yeah. a directory,
1: right? Well. That would actually help a lot of people, and that becomes a product on its own that can help everybody, but also be a utility in a way. Like, it's a public service, right? And so just like Craigslist sort of did that for us, right? So if you think about it, it used to be hard to sell things on the internet. Yeah. You just had eBay, then Craigslist came around, boom. Well, that wiped out all the classified sections because it was so powerful. In a way, if there was a delivery system that was able to essentially coordinate pickups and drop-offs within within essentially 36-hour delay, where there would be a switchover in a warehouse, and maybe try to get that down to 24 in a local area, where essentially a farm could, like a driver could come out to a farm, and the farm could put things in the van, the van could go back to the place, and then the place could then deliver everybody's stuff. Right? If you yeah. think about that, right? That could potentially replace grocery stores for a lot of people. But yeah. you're adding all this cost of transportation here and transportation there, you know, and again, that chicken maybe has to cost $15 if you want to yeah. get it from a farmer. And now by the time I've got it to my customer, it's like 20 bucks and nobody's yeah. made any money. Yeah. So, you know, it only works at scale. So I see Amazon maybe could pull that off. I see, um, you know, like Walmart, you know, or some some huge massive company that wanted to do that level of crazy coordination. But I'll be honest with you, I just don't see it working like that. I think instead, it's gotta be a sea change of the way that Americans look at food in general. I think mm. that we have to make gardening cool. I think it needs to be cool yeah. to be able to like walk outside and pick fruit off of yeah. a tree, you know? Yeah. I think we need. it needs to be like, oh, you don't have a community garden space? Like, mm. that's what, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you yeah, can get yeah, yeah. there, Right or like, Mom, we're yeah. not planting a garden this year? If you can get there, <laughs> then you're somewhere, right? And I think that like all problems in life, I mean, at the end of the day, given the constraints of the world that we live in, marketing and capitalism are the way to solve this problem. And so how do we get people to feel that way and to feel good about doing those things and to participate in a system that then benefits everybody else, right? The fringe yeah. benefit is all that extra food goes to the food bank. The fringe benefit yeah. is all that extra f- labor goes to school gardens, right, or whatever it is. You know. Yeah. And I think those things are short-term achievable. You know, What if you had a, a greenhouse at every high school that sold vegetable? yeah how crazy would that be (laughs) you imagine people coming to see that because it's so cool and then oh wow and you you can rent your own garden space right here right there's enough master gardeners and there's enough people that are crazy like me to like make that happen right but until we all know each other and understand that that's what we want to do together as a group and figure out what that group is and give it a structure and figure out how to fund the thing and like that these are the problems of of organizing in society right and and, and you know, and that's why, and that's why, when you're looking at a massive problem like this, nothing ever happens. It seems like because it's only the hyper specific that moves the needle on anything. Yeah. You know, and so you you really sure. need a whole lot of sea change to happen at the same time. Now, that all being said, I've never been more optimistic in my life. We're looking at COVID, yeah. and there's a lot of people out there that are like, man, what if we change this and this in this city? Wouldn't that be something, right? And if enough people do that. And everything changes. I feel like yeah. that might happen. You know, I mean, everybody's out wearing masks, it seems like that didn't take very yeah. long. That's true. We were pretty <laughs> slow. We
0: were a little slow <laughs> to the masking, but I have for sure seen it. Seen it at least in the last two weeks, for sure. Yeah. it has been more of a widespread thing, for sure. Yep. Um, I think um, uh, just to kind of, kind of, just kind of give a little conclusion to this little small part of this. Um, I think what you, uh, uh, kind of what you're saying is that uh, the big, huge apparatuses that have kind of pushed food into grocery stores and restaurants and things like that—they're so big and they're so uh, almost immovable that to think that there is a possibility of moving those things out of the way—it's kind of hard to think that that would happen, but uh, it seems that there, are at the very least because of the internet and because of people like you uh, there are communities and, and smaller apparatuses that are making those small incremental changes that might one day change the might, it might change the status quo um, at some point. It, it's gonna take a shift in attitude, it's gonna take um, personalities like yourself going out there and kind of being in front and uh, trying to change people's minds about the way they think of food. But at the very minimum, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, and I wanna, I guess I wanna add, like, the the real, the real secret here, right? So if anybody that really cares about anything like this, and and it doesn't have to be food, I mean, just to blow the whole thing open on how you change things, at the end of the day, this is about leading people who want to be led, essentially, there's a whole group of people for no matter what it is you care about, there's a there's a massive group of people that care about that as well. There's so many people in the world. It's law of averages. People care yeah. about it. If you can think for it, sure. people care about it. Yeah. And the problem is, is that nobody has started the movement yet, right? And so a lot mm-hmm. of people are like, well, what do I do? I'm just one person. And what I really, yeah. really love is is popping that bubble really aggressively because this idea of being just one person is the only way that it could ever be and so it's a stupid excuse and you're only ever going to be an influential for yourself essentially yeah you're you're influencing yourself to go out there and do the thing that you want to do now if you do that and you give generously and you lead and you say come let's go here right you make it an inclusive thing What happens is all the other people that are too chicken shit to lead suddenly have somebody to follow. And Mm. because you know that that change needs to be made in the world, um, sitting on your hands and saying, well, somebody is going to step up is really, you know, you have to ask yourself, what kind of person are you interested in being, right? Yeah. Because if you can identify yeah. problems and you can identify solutions, but you can't act upon them, what good are you doing? Right? I mean, it's really like, it, it, you know, it's a strange way to look at it sometimes, but I mean, you know, that is what it is. Your solutions to the world's problems mean nothing within your head. And then you get the other group of people that say, well, how do I, you know, I don't have the solution. Well, again, mm-hmm. you don't need the solution, you just need to know that there's a problem. And then you have to start asking questions about, well, why is it like this? Why, why, why did things become this way? Let's just say that you, you had an ax to grind and you wanted to figure out how to change something about Texas, uh, let's say Dallas City government. Okay. First thing you need to do is understand who can make your change. Probably city council. They're extremely mm-hmm. powerful. There's 14 of them, which means you have a good odds of sort of like convincing enough people. And they usually, if one of them votes with something, you know, they can usually convince their friends. And so, like, if you can meet some of these people and become influential with them, you might be able to get what you want done. Right. Yeah. Now, if that is the case, and, and you're like, wow, well, I wanna do this, but I don't know these people. I don't, I don't really know how it even got this way. Like, you know, why is it that you can't buy liquor on Sundays or whatever it is that you wanna change? <laughs> you can use the questioning process of understanding why it's that way to change it. You literally can change things by asking questions about why they are the way that they are. It's called journalism. And all you have to do is essentially say, huh, you know, I've really been wondering, you know, why did this happen? You go on the internet and you figure out, well, who wrote that article? And you call them and then you figure out, well, this guy voted for it and this one didn't. You call them and you say, why? And then you report on that information. The people that are looking for that information, right? Like, do you ever wonder how we could change this? This is how, boom, you're the leader, done. It's over, right? And people come to you and they say, what do we do? And you say, well, I have these questions left, right? Mm -hmm. None of it is hard. It's simply believing that your questions are worth finding answers to. And I guess just believing that you're worth, you know, the time of asking them, right? Like, I should do this thing, you know, I mean, I would hope. But if you really, truly want to see change in the world, uh, you're probably sitting around and not doing it. And you probably don't really want to see the change, right? So I always just, you know, I tell people that want to be, be the leader and be the change maker, be careful about the way that you talk about what you want to do because if you talk about wanting to change things all the time but you never make any moves to do it no one will ever listen to you right and yeah. so you know it's a challenge yeah. to people out there you know it's like you just have to start right you yeah. know um the, the other way to put it briefly is just you know uh which i think really hits people really well so i always like to use this as, as an example but everybody is just sitting out there waiting to be picked and mm-hmm. Um, the brilliant author, yeah. Seth Godin, um, the quote is so brilliant, but it's like, pick yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. no one is going to pick wow. you. <laughs> like, wow. yeah. Why would they pick you? They don't know what's in your head. That is ridiculous. Now, if you Absolutely. said, Hey, look at me, here's this thing. Let me give it to you. Right. Look at it. I did the work. Tell me what you think. Now you're gonna get some feedback and probably be negative. But that's a good thing, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: That's the first step, yes. you know? But but that's really in the essence of it, right? We talk about like, why well, do we make these changes? And and honestly, the tech is there, my friend. You know as well as I do, anybody could do any of these things. But people yeah. are deciding that they don't deserve to. They mm. they subscribe to to imposter syndrome and they think they think negatively about their abilities, yeah. essentially. And Absolutely. part of what I do is try to change the world. The other part is try to make people change that part of their mind so that they can help me. <laughs>
0: <Absolutely>. <laughs> Making your own army as well. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, love that. I love that. so much because um, I think that it, that 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 kind of advice applies for everything. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're in the food industry. To everybody. To everybody. It's, you, everybody it, it's, in the it's world. literally it doesn't yeah.
1: matter what you want to do. <laughs> no, like just
0: just you know start and 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 be okay with failure. Um, yes. It's it's a big thing that a lot of people just they just don't like to deal with failure. They don't like to deal with criticism. I mean, I, it's in myself as well. I fight imposter syndrome every time I turn on this camera. Like, um, and like I've, I've reserved myself to just fighting it as much as possible. And um, it's hey, really you well. Right, thank you, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is it is it's such a. I feel like it is it is probably, if if the if the human being had, like. Five or six traits that it had to always have to fight off. One of them is 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 the the, the thought of being powerful, or or the thought of yeah. having the capacity for power.
1: Oh yeah, you know, it's scary <laughs> so, for so yeah. many different reasons. There's a brilliant book that you must read called The War of Art. Now you probably heard of I The Art War, it. Sun Tzu, yes. but but have you heard of The War of Art? Stephen Pressfield. Okay. I have. So I'll give a summary briefly. You've heard it. So for the audience, at least. But the idea is that there's this, there's this resistance that exists within all of us, essentially. And, and Pressfield basically is looking at what the things that we call as um, writer's block, right? Or, yeah. you know, I just, yeah. oh, I'm not in the mood right or oh i need to get you know i need to get like blasted first before i can do that you know like yeah. i don't like the lack of the creative thought and he basically just says look this is this is the resistance and what the resistance really is is just this idea that you can't finish this because your your ego essentially is holding you into the status quo yeah. and so the closer you get this is the painful part the closer yeah. you get to being great the harder it is to step forward. It's like climbing Everest, essentially. But yeah. once you summit, down, ain't no thing, right? It's easy, yeah. you're like, oh wow, that was no big deal. And that's the sure. magic of the resistance. It is the most evil force yes. <laughs> yes. in humanity. but. But understanding that and understanding that it is a war and that it is the discipline of saying, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this thing. This is the thing that I do. It's putting on your hat and saying, if I want to be a writer someday, then I will be a writer today. I will write today. That makes me a writer. You know Ryan Adams, a brilliant musician and and womanizer apparently, and and yeah. me too me too aficionado. I will tell one good story about the man though, and take his advice as a songwriter and nothing else, is that he gets up every day and writes songs for like eight fucking hours. Yeah. And there's a reason why he puts out yeah. multiple records every year and wins all the awards yeah. and is incredible. And it's because he does that. And there's many many people who do Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, many examples of folks that treat what they do as a profession, essentially. So if you are in the business of changing and leading and organizing and having big ideas and seeing things through, right, then you must make that your job. Like, that is your job. And if it isn't your job, then you may reevaluate sort of what what it is that you're trying to get out of it. Sometimes people feel like they have to go change the world because they want to fit into the world and they just need to meet the right people. That could be the issue too, right? But folks that truly want to change things, I mean, yeah, you just have to pull off the bandaid.
0: For sure. Uh, when I, um, so I heard about the book from, I heard, it, I heard it from, I'm going to bring up this guy. I'm just going to do it once. Joe Rogan. Fine, <laughs> um, bring up Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah he, he touted the war of art um, man, like seven years ago. Oh wow! Um, yes. Yeah, so, so I, I've, I've been listening to him for almost ten years. I mean, almost the beginning. Sure. Um, yeah. um, there I've a, a, I, I, I'm going to find it. There is an infographic of the War of Art that details just like in picture form specifics from the oh, book wow. in a picture format. I forget where it is, but um, I'll if, if I if I find it, I'll, I'll put it on this part of the interview. Um, but the biggest thing for me, the the biggest lessons that I learned from um. Understanding that book and what it what it brought to me is that it the reason he calls it a demon The reason he calls it a war is because it is painful It it, it is it is the 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 act of discipline is a painful act It yeah. hurts and it, and it is scary and it is it is like facing down a monster And the the truth of it is, is that you just have to push through um, the best way out is through um, and it's, uh, it's, 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 it, it, it's, uh, it sucks, but a lot of people have, uh, you know, a self-esteem and, you know, be it societal or, or just, you know, things have happened in your life, but uh, we have this, like, uh, a lot of people have this, uh, ideal about themselves that they can't move beyond, but it is, it is, the, the, it is true of my life and for my example that the greatest highs and the best rewards that I've ever gotten or from pushing that away and from really persevering and just being as fearless against my own fears uh, as possible. So fantastic I, recommendation.
1: Well, you know, it, it, it comes down to this thing where, it, you know, the human brain, the way we have a hero story and mm-hmm. it makes it where that it, almost nothing amazing in your life has ever happened unless something terrible had just happened. and. Mm-hmm. There's just something about the way the narrative works. You know, we're storytelling machines and we just love this idea of perseverance. And and that's what's so great about, you know, I tried to work on this book for years and years and then I just push through and that becomes the great story. Whereas, well, you know, I just sit down, I just write every day. I'm an amazing is a pretty boring story. And so what's great about this is that for again, for folks that still don't understand what the, what the true The true secret that we're describing here is is that not only is it as simple as pushing through to the other side it's actually a benefit that you haven't started until now in a way and so it hasn't done anything negative to you in fact it just improves your story and so if you're able to say you know i struggled and struggled and struggled and then i decided to take myself seriously that's when other people start to take you, you seriously too, right? And so it's a really Absolutely. nice kind of way to get into yes. these things.
0: And it's also a great way for other people to get inspired to do their own thing. I've found that people definitely get inspired from the work that you do, right? If, if they see you standing up and doing the things that you want to do, I, I can totally see how someone else would get a little bit more of uh, you know uh, idea in their head of saying if that person can do it, so can I. So it's you know it's kind of a thing that kind of spreads. You know? Yeah,
1: I think so. Yeah, I mean you know really, and and that's the goal, right? And I I challenge myself you know to put myself into uncomfortable positions because if I'm doing it, oh, there's a bartender up there talking to all of these people. It's like you know the bartenders out there are like, wow, cool. You know I have a good friend Kathy Alt- Altamirano who. Uh, works for Counterculture Coffee, which is like the most progressive coffee company in the world essentially. And mm. they, they scope out all these tiny farms and pay everybody way more money than normal for their coffee and it's just incredible. And she is um, Latina and specifically goes and judges coffee competitions so that she can sort of rep you know the people that are on the stage for them because if you know anything about coffee it's a bunch of dudes that look like me but usually mustaches right <laughs> yeah. and um you know when you know when people of color and and women are doing coffee contests like that's pretty rare actually and so yeah. there's something that we can do just literally being in these places is powerful in ways that you never know, and so you know if you're somebody that cares about that kind of thing of like, well, how do I do the best good in the world? How do I make the use of my time? Then it becomes even more imperative. I mean, the more that you look at it, it's just like, wow, like you've really been waiting too long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You, you'll find you will, you will, you will, you will change yourself in ways you didn't even realize just by right. having that act. Um, I do want to get back on topic before I let you go a little bit. Um, you are starting a bagel company in the midst yes. of all this. um uh, It is. Is it uh, Lenore's handmade? Yeah, Lenore's. Am I saying that yeah, right? Lenore's. Yeah, Lenore's
1: handmade bagel company. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I wanted to ask, what is the process of getting that together in this climate? And I think that's a that's kind of a really, uh, it's a you know it's a topical thing that I think a lot of people yeah. kind of get out of. If you have, uh, if you could give me a yeah. little bit of anecdotes about that.
1: Uh, totally. I I yeah. love talking about it. And you know we just. And we just announced this company four days ago and you know i um we've been working on this project for for about i would say two months maybe maybe three months now and you know it kind of came up as an idea uh during covid i think like a lot of people we started baking a lot of bread and you know i've i uh yeah i cook at home constantly and my wife has been taking a lot of time now we're both at home all the time to to really like turn up the dial on her cooking I mean, it is incredible she's just going nuts and you know I've been for the first time kind of stepping back and not like constantly trying to like teach her things and all that and so she's been really pursuing her own passions in the kitchen and she made bagels and she's Jewish so she made bagels and yeah. we can't travel right now and there's no good bagels in Dallas and so yeah she made bagels and um, and they're okay and so then we made about like 15 more batches of bagels <laughs> nice. and we created something that was just really stunning. And, you know, I had just gotten, you know, speaking of networking, I had just got done interviewing um, this guy, James Brown, not the famous James Brown, but, but a miller, James Brown, who actually works for Barton Springs Mill, uh, kind of outside of Austin in Dripping Springs. Yeah. And they mill flour uh, in grits and such, corn, you know, too, but mostly flour for, um, you know, stuff that's grown in Texas. So we've been able to actually get, like, local flour from these guys. And so they're growing um, a pretty high-end grain called Yacora Rojo, and it's the same one that they use for sourdough at Tartine in San Francisco, if anybody's familiar. So it's a really nice wheat. And it's ground, actually, in, uh, in Dripping Springs at Barton Springs Mill, and then it's sifted, sort of like a Italian 00-style flour. And so it removes a lot of the weight of, like, what would make it whole wheat. But because yeah. it's ground whole, we just have this whole different product, right? So mm-hmm. we got some of this flour in and we made the bagels with that. And then it was totally game over. And so I turned to my wife and I was like, "Let's launch a bagel company." I mean, literally what I do is 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 this stuff anyway, essentially. You know, I create concepts yeah. and and help people launch them. I, you know, design kitchens and write menus and do training programs and that kind of stuff for restaurants and bars and all that, right? And so for us, you know, I've been Like I said at the beginning, you know, I was trying to open a restaurant sort of before this whole COVID thing went down. And my business partner um, left the business and moved to Colorado to take a job to take care of his family because we're like, whoa, we don't know where the money is going to come from. And I decided that the best thing for me to do was to double down and try to figure out how to maneuver in this climate, you know. And so for the first couple months, I didn't do anything commercial at all. I was just spending money on things that would help me offer more to the community essentially you know learning things like video learning things like you know all the all the weird Facebook stuff of running groups and you know there's just so much but then also just networking with a ton of people at the same time right and trying to and trying to figure out you know where are those connections and how can we put people together to help things you know yeah and so about halfway through the summer we realized that you know there isn't going to be a food and beverage business coming back anytime soon in a way that is normal like i typically deal with high-end restaurants you know places that buy from farms like it's not it's not really that's really not happening essentially at all right now and so we decided that it would be really interesting to see if we could develop something that we could bootstrap using very limited equipment very limited money but instead that relied on sort of the internet and was able to scale in a different way than a normal food business would. So typically, Mm, yeah, you know, I mean, so like typically if I was gonna design a bagel place, I would say, well, what are we gonna call it? We named it after Jessica, my wife's uh, grandmother, Lenore, and you know, she's from New York, and used to eat bagels and the whole thing, was a great story, it's wonderful. And she drew out the logo and all that, and you know, we scanned it in and made it all sexy and you know, typically what I would do is then go try to negotiate some real estate and write a business yeah. plan and figure out well how much money do I need to borrow am I going to fundraise this money Am i going to give away some equity am I going to go to the SBA like how is this going to happen right and then I have to interface with an architect an interior designer we'd have to deal with you know a real estate broker there's just all this stuff essentially that goes into opening a restaurant and typically it's crazy expensive essentially mm-hmm. I mean just like nutty expensive, somewhere around $400 per foot, typically to get the whole thing built out, to pay the lawyers, to get your licensing, whatever. And then you would start. So you'd need more money for like in the bank and all that, right? But it's yeah. about that much money. So if you, you know, think about like a thousand square foot restaurant, it's a big old yeah. number, we're talking about $400,000. Yeah. Wow, yeah. okay. That's a very small restaurant for a lot of money. That's typical yeah. for a new build restaurant. But if you look at what happened with COVID, somewhere between 25% and 50%, and maybe more, if Texas doesn't get its act together, of restaurants will never open again. And that means that there's going to be a lot of weirdness happening in the market. That means real estate prices are gonna go down, it means equipment's gonna go down, it means, because there's gonna be all this used stuff everywhere, it's gonna be weird. And so, we thought what would be interesting is to try to scale in a way that would take advantage of, of the fact that people are at home and aren't really that worried about like where something is as much like locations aren't as important as they were a moment ago right and instead if you could get it delivered to their house there's a way to do there's a way to do something that would be that would essentially get you um you know small scale ghost kitchen delivery kind of thing essentially
0: yeah, yeah. like the instagram kitchens are doing now
1: <laughs> yes yeah so it's a small scale delivery kind of yeah. Instagram thing, right? That's the idea. Right. But yeah. once you once you establish that in the market as like a single item thing, and then you become the master of that item, then you're able to scale into bigger locations, storefronts, all this different stuff. So it's essentially brand building in reverse. Because normally you yeah. have to make this huge investment up front, and then, sorry, my dog is squeaking. Give me one second. I'm gonna squeak your <laughs> pancake for just, <laughs> thank you. My dog is named after food. She's named after pancakes, but she's a she's a little she's actually a little black pit bull and doesn't look anything like a pancake, but um, <laughs> but is the perfect name for her. And our other dog name is Moon Pie. So I mean, really, it's a food family all the way around. Right on. Yeah. So, but what it allows you to do is essentially get out there and get your brand out there and use all of this latent inventory of stuff, right? So there's a lot of kitchens laying around, there's a lot of equipment laying around, there's a lot of designers, there's a lot of web people, there's a lot of whatever, right? We're doing most of that stuff in-house. So, you know, we we do events and we do different things already, so we have a lot of equipment, right? I've got a I do tech and design so we can understand that. So then the next question is is like how do we get the food to people? Well, there's an awful lot of people without jobs. And so what if you were able to essentially say hey like out of work baker would you like to deliver this product and once we're delivering enough of this product and we slide into a situation where you're we're no longer delivering it cuz we can you know we're doing postmates or we're doing uber eats or we're doing whatever right it's about scaling with sort of the resources as they exist now, of course, traditionally, the problem is is that restaurants are too expensive to ever do like that. And so there hasn't yeah. been a really good way into the market in Dallas. Dallas, it's not the hardest place in the world to do food trucks, but it's very hard to do food trucks here. It's why we don't do food trucks here. Probably yeah. notice, there's yeah. not a big food truck scene. <laughs> yeah, And so there's, a- there's not like a real obvious way for people to get around this. And so what's happening now is that folks are doing this ghost kitchen thing, essentially, where it's a brand that lives inside of a space, but that space isn't important at all. You could move somewhere else and the brand would still be the same. And so for something like Lenore's, you know, our first move is to actually get our product in other people's businesses. So we're making bagels, but I'm gonna sell them to other people who will then sell the bagels or make products with them. Like I'm gonna sell them to my friend Julian at Whisk Crepes Cafe over at Sylvan and 30. He's the first person, first customer essentially is like, hey, I need three dozen of these bagels, right? He gave him a bag of bagels. The only marketing we've done is I made six bag of bagels and handed them to six people, right? Okay, so one of those people says, hey, I need three dozen of these bagels next Friday. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) That was fast, (laughs) right? And so. And so I'm thinking like, well, I wasn't necessarily gonna do that. But see, the thing about being the salesperson and being the owner at the same time, very important if you're starting a business, is that you get to decide what you sell. And so it's like, well, yeah, of course we do wholesale bagels to restaurants for you to make (laughs) sandwiches. Duh, like obviously that's what we wanna do. And so we're gonna fill that order. And now we're thinking, wow, we could do a lot of things like that too, right? And as you grow, you start to understand that like, if you're a restaurant, then the only eaters that you can see are the ones that are in your room or the ones that are on the app and they're ordering from you or whatever, right? But mostly the people that come to see you. Yeah. But if you're a ghost, then it's like, where can I deliver to? How many zip codes can I hit in DFW? How can I yeah. figure out how to ship them for not too much money? What can I, right, how can I use, like you're saying the, the the gig economy essentially to make this thing go bigger, so our plan is that exactly. You know, I want to bring in yeah. drivers, and I want to essentially have bags and boxes with manifests ready to go. I've yeah. got, you know, I'm developing essentially uh, a system where they'd be able to go on the phone and, you know, have their whole yeah. delivery route already on there. And then when the bag would be dropped on the doorstep, they'd hit a button, delivery completed, and it would text the people in the house, say, "Hey, there's bagels on your door. Order complete." Right? Yeah. There aren't a lot of restaurants doing that because you—it's almost impossible to take all of the tech stack that exists within a restaurant right now, some legacy POS system or yeah. Square or whatever it is, and like yeah. maneuver all of that. That is hard enough on its own, but then imagining the stack of people, right? You think about like, (laughs) what kind (laughs) of people do you need to pull that off? How do you distribute all of those different items? It's going to be easy for me because it's just one thing, just a bagel. That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But now we're talking about the full scope of restaurant, whole different situation. So one of the things that was so important to us when we started this project was to think, what could we do where we're only making one thing? I have. Nine items in my inventory that I order to produce this one line of items. It's a bagel and four variety, right? Mm. And I have mm-hmm. nine yeah. inventory items. A normal restaurant might have 150 inventory items, okay? <laughs> this is a really big yeah. difference. And what we're creating is a product company. And then we'll create a storefront cafe concept later. Mm-hmm but instead what we're doing now is creating a product company. And I encourage a lot of people to look at that instead because a restaurant lives and dies by its menu. Well, if that's the case, why not just do the menu instead? Like if the menu is really the important part, if that's what people are really coming for, right? right. I tell chefs this right. all the time, right? It's like, if that's really what it is, then that should be valuable enough on its own. And it yeah. is to some markets, right? And so for us, like we know that there's plenty of people where I can sell 10, 20, 30 dozen bagels a week well gosh if i'm selling 30 dozen bagels a week that's plenty of money to scale the business organically right and so sometimes when entrepreneurs are starting projects um they'll they'll say well you know i want to do bagels but then we got to do bagel sandwiches and i want to make cream cheese and we're going to do this with the butter and we're going to you know i want to do Whole grain bagels, and then we're gonna do a honey wheat bagel, and then I'm gonna do a, a chocolate bagel. And so you've got all yeah. these different doughs, right? There's 15 different varieties. Yeah. All this different stuff. But the thing that people don't normally do is just take the bagel, give it to somebody and say, How is this? Do you like this bagel? Right. And would yeah. you buy more of just this one thing, or does it need to be something else? Instead, they try to they try to do more by doing more essentially, mm-hmm. and really that never works because as an entrepreneur or as a freelancer or really any way that you're trying to make money for yourself, doing work for yourself, the only way for you to really make more money is to be able to charge more for what you're doing, which means yeah. that you're gonna have to, you're really gonna have to like dial in things, right? Yeah. So like, you know, if you think about food, the, the easiest way to make more money in food isn't to charge more money because that makes people run away, it's to spend yeah. less money, right? And mm. you don't wanna spend less money on the ingredients. You just want to buy less of them so there's less waste and there's less confusion and it's more efficient and you can make more money on it, right? And so I right. see the future operating a lot like that. You know, we sort of yeah. talk about this co-op idea and all that, you see it in coffee shops, you see it, you know, coffee roasters, beer places, micro whatevers, right? Yeah. But there aren't a lot of really like killer micro bakeries here. And so we thought, well, it'd be interesting to see if we could turn the wheel on that. And so for us right now, what's great is that it's such a minimal investment to get into a game like this. You know, our most expensive thing is the flour that we're buying. We're buying really, really expensive mm-hmm. flour. And I'm buying 150 pounds at a time. But other than that, and how expensive could flour really be? It's just flour, right? <laughs> so right. other yeah. than that, the question is, what, you know, what else? would you be worrying about if you did it a different way and would it be more profitable, right? Would it be more profitable if I had to have a bakery and have 6,000, you know, like, and have all these employees and the air conditioning and all that, or maybe I rent one for just a short period of time every week and only deliver maybe once a week. And then that way all my customers can order, they can get all their stuff on one day and I can pay for just that one thing. Because as a small business, you don't need everybody You just need a very small group of extremely loyal fans who love everything you do. And that is enough to push anything off the edge. And so the restaurant model of build it and they will come is Mm -hmm. flawed from the beginning. And I really (laughs) encourage people to sort of explore different ways to figure out how to advertise a restaurant before it exists, essentially. Because Mm. if there's a way to to build excitement and, and and just this like, oh my God, this thing is happening before it actually happens, then you don't have to take as much risk because restaurants are really expensive. And then yeah. the other thing is that, because from an investor perspective, restaurants and concepts and products that are already proven in the market, maybe written about already, there's been events, there's been this, there's been that, right? They're a lot more likely to invest in that. And so it's a really, really good strategy, I think, moving forward for people. It's obviously challenging, depending on what you're trying to make, Bagels are easy, sure. right? There's a for reason sure. why we're doing that. It's Actually, not easy. It's the most challenging bread there is, probably, to make. But so, yeah. it's still bread, right? So you know, yeah. easier than yeah, yeah. easier than steak, probably, for for distribution. Probably. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. You don't have to grow an animal <laughs> for several, exactly several right. months or years. Yeah, exactly Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, I do. Uh, I do like the insight there. Um, it sounds like uh, essentially what you're doing is is scaling back the overhead, right? Which is basically we're gonna we're gonna just dump all of this huge, massive, bloated stuff to the side we're going to start with basics first we're just going to make sure we're going to we're going to we're going to make one thing that's really good and we're going to advertise it in-house as best we can and try to get you know loyal people to come in right which you know does sound like what is emerging to be and what should what, well actually if you were to just break that down before covid that's a, that's probably a great strategy to start a business
1: it's but a great strategy
0: of, <laughs> yeah but now because of covid it's yeah. like it's what's really, probably going to work, right? It's what's really, great. <laughs> <right? laughs>
1: there's a never way to put it, and, and I'll, I'll reference Seth Godin again. So, so Seth Godin's an author of all these amazing marketing books, and, and his most recent is called This Is Marketing. And the whole thing, there's just one thesis, it's really, he, he, the way he puts it, and I think it's so funny, he was like, literally the only thing you need to know about marketing is this. And it's people like us do things like this and so if you're if you're a fancy steakhouse well mm. who goes to there right well it's like people like us which is you know expensive lawyer businessman trying to close a deal likes the expensive steak likes to show off drives an expensive car people like us do things like this it's the reason why yeah. certain people live in certain places it's why certain people wear certain things certain people listen to certain things it's just marketing and so yeah. You know we're talking about like pre and post-covid right so pre-covid yeah the idea is of course you know get your core group of people to fall in love with your product and then they will tell their friends because they say hey you know i know that you love traveling to new york and i have found the best new bagel and it will blow your mind and you owe me big Right? Because this is status acquisition, right? This is what people yeah. do. They're like, I'm let me tell you about this place. Like anytime you've ever been to like one of those cult, classic, amazing like barbecue joints, for instance, this is a great example in, in Texas. You've probably been to like, you know, Blacks or something like that, or you know, Cadillac or Pecan Lodge, yeah. right? Cadillac, for right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. And somebody invariably in front of you turns to you and says, Oh my God, have you been here before? You need to get the X, Y, and Z. Right, and then sometimes they'll <laughs> yeah. even come over to you later and say, "Hey, for did sure. you get that thing?" You know, especially reed. in Texas, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, because they want the satisfaction, and because they're gonna go home, they're gonna tell their wife, "Oh yeah, I ate a, you know, I ate a Cadillac." And there was this guy who'd never been there before, so I told him to get the, you know, the whatever, and it yeah. blew his mind, and yeah. because because that makes him feel good to have told somebody that he did that thing for you, right? So you know, yeah. people like us do things like this, right? And so. Before COVID, yeah, it's people like us. Well, we go to these cool restaurants, we we do, we eat this food, we eat, you know, we eat gluten-free, we do whatever we do, yeah, right? It's yeah, marketing, yeah. Right? right? And right. so the problem is, is that people see that and they say, like, well, I go to steakhouses because I love this steak, but that's bullshit. That's not why they go to the steakhouse. They go to the steakhouse because everybody else is there that they want to be around. Okay. Yeah. And there just happens to be steak there. The steak is sort of like secondary to the thing that you're really right. selling. Um, you know, I always used to say that the future of retail is entirely in the hospitality business. But now, the future of retail is just sort of up in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and that's what's happened post-COVID. It so might it's be not, literally. Quite literally, it may be. Yeah, so, but, might, but, literally. but here's the insight, right? It's that it's that it's not that people aren't there for the food. It's just that that's not the reason why they feel the way that they mm. feel, because they get that food yeah. anywhere. And so what restaurateurs, i have been trying to figure out is like, well, if we're selling the service and the hospitality, how do we charge for that? Because we're charging for something that people aren't actually here for, alcohol, food, these things. These are, they need them in a way, because they're here, it's dinner, they're gonna eat, but they could have eaten somewhere else for a lot less money, right, and right, everybody yeah, knows that. Yeah. So, so as you transition into COVID, then you have to take that insight with you. And this is why I think like the, the, it's being peeled back and people are saying like, oh, people weren't coming out because of my specials, necessarily, maybe they were, maybe they're choosing one or the other restaurant because of that. No, they were coming out because they didn't want to cook. They are coming out because they they were bored at home because there's nothing to do. They're coming out for entertainment, they're coming out to get laid. Why do people go to the bar? To get laid, that's why they go to the bar, not for your specialty cocktail, unfortunately, and you know, as somebody who's made (laughs) a lot of specialty cocktails in my life, that's a really hard thing to admit, is that you're not, you know, you're not as special Unfortunately, to the guest as you think you are, it's really right. all about them, right? And so our our industry has to figure that out at some point. And so as we push back against Uber and Postmates and all of this crap that like is making our lives harder, I think instead we have to start looking at that as this is making our customers' lives easier. Mm-hmm. Ergo, it's good. Period. Yeah. And if we can't accept that, then maybe we don't deserve our customers anymore. So I'm thinking we need to figure that out. Now Look, if it's unfair and they're doing predatory practices and whatever it is, that's fine. But frankly, the world has moved into a very weird model. And it's going to seem weird to everybody for some time. But just like we could never imagine not having Facebook or not having texting or not having a phone on your camera anymore, everything changes. And camera phones killed the digital camera market. And digital camera market, they didn't cry. They made better cameras they made cameras that were worth buying that you couldn't make that technology happen on a phone because the distances are too small and those are the cameras we buy now and it drove innovation so what are restaurants gonna do that's the big question and i think like it's it's kind of our move you know and so there's people that are that are working on that you know i have friends that um you know niwa japanese barbecue in in deep ellum they're they're hosting inside of it right now a little pop-up called sandoichi and it's a Japanese sandwich thing and it's incredible. And I think their Ooh. first week they sold like 10,000 sandwiches. I, I swear to God. It was like, <laughs> wow. Yeah, sold out instantly, just yeah. like stupid <laughs> yeah. busy, but it's wow. Instagrammable yeah. and it's sexy and it's cool yeah. and it's innovative, it's comfort food. And it just, yeah. you know, but you just go and you just pick it up or they deliver it. And it's like, that is really exciting to people when there isn't other things that are exciting, you know? Or look at uh, drive in movies. I think it's another one. Drive in movie theaters yeah. are back. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because, yeah. you know, for this moment. Now, people say, wow, we should open a drive-in movie theater. No, it's a terrible idea because they're going to go away as soon as COVID goes away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's I not don't know. more convenient than Netflix. So yeah, it will go true. away. And this yeah. is the thing is we always have to remember, like, don't compete with Amazon. Don't compete with Netflix. Like, these are bad ideas, right? Embrace the cultural changes, right? But do it better. You know, as yeah. an entrepreneur, it's always about, you know, are you the first person to ever do it? Or are you the best person to ever do it? Or are you doing it cheaper than everybody else? And if you're going to mm-hmm. do it cheaper than everybody else, you're never going to make a dime. So just give it up. If you're going to do it better than everybody else, that's what you got to do. Doing it first. I mean, you're just rolling the dice and you're probably not going to be the best. Right. And so if right. you want to, you know, if you want to really do something, find something you're passionate about and just do it better than everybody else.
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> you, you know, I, uh, I think it's that, that that I mean that all all of that kind of just points to like one of the most basic notions of business, right? Uh, evolve or die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. industries, to. yeah, industries go away because more conveniences happen, and that's the reason Toys R Us went down. Uh, it's the reason the MLB is going down. You have leadership that is just not innovating or not allowing innovation to happen.
1: There could be so it's, much it's cool innovation in sports. <laughs> it is such a yeah. huge wasted opportunity, you know.
0: yeah.
1: If you look at what happened with fantasy, everything, and the fact yeah. that the major leagues didn't figure out how to have, the, the fans want to play the game. <laughs> they want <laughs> to be in the game. Yes. It's not that complicated. You know, People or, don't um, understand it, but they, they, they want to be a part of your process. You know, people like us do things like this. Yeah. They want to be yeah. you, you know.
0: Yeah, um, wh- uh, one of the biggest things that they did was they went through YouTube, the MLB did, and copyrighted anyone who talked about baseball. <laughs> like
1: they completely it's, it's kicked it's off. It's the opposite of marketing. An enti- you see yeah, you see that, like,
0: like, but yeah, that's that's it's kind of That's it's what happens, anti-marketing. Though, it? Yeah, it's it's one of those crazy things. And um, um, before I let you go, I kind of um, one last little thing I want to talk about. Um, what. Uh, if with your expertise and your time in the industry um, is there any type of actual um, say uh, government sponsored program or any type of thing or legislation that you think uh, people should go out there people in the industry people not in industry who, uh, should be pushing to their congressman um, any specifics that you can give on, on any and on any kind of things like that that you know uh, would help move the needle in, in you know in helping the industry as a whole or, or
1: I think there's I think there's two big categories essentially of things, you know, and 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 we can get really specific, of course, but I think that you know, generally speaking, the things that matter right now is this idea that America is in love with small businesses. We're like mm-hmm. just, you know, I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. We it totally cheat on our girlfriend with small businesses, mm-hmm. and the problem with that is that our actual government is not, and so. Mm-hmm if we want to make life easier for people, um, we need to essentially make it easier to start a business in this country, which kind of sounds crazy because this is the land of opportunity. It's supposed to be very easy. And it is functionally simple to do, but the problem is is that we don't educate anybody about finance unless they go to college for it essentially. You, know, you're, you're, you don't yeah. learn about accounting and finance and people don't know what a p is and they don't know how to do a budget and, and none of those things sort of exist until later and you sort of learn it from work. And I, I do think that is by design. And so I would love to see yeah. education on how how you can start a business, what an LLC does for you, why it protects you, how the tax code works, you know, what pass-through income is, what is a K-1, why <laughs> do all these people call me all the, the time? The science you of know. business, yes. I mean, it is like, it's great once you know about it, but then yeah. what you realize why it's so great is because not everybody does. And so it's specialized information. And so I think we need to, democratize that info i think we need to make it really easy for people to have a great idea and get something open i think we should make money really cheap for first second and third and fourth and fifth and whatever time business owners i honestly think that and i think that we should make it cheap in areas that society determines that it wants essentially hey who wants to open this and instead of giving the incentives to these big massive companies that invariably are just using it for tax write-offs we could really incentivize like small fry people and I, and I think that would be super important but the the inverse thing that i think would be really good to happen is that we need to start focusing on labor and i think you know in the vein of you know you know perhaps uh, folks like andrew yang or yeah. you know even thinking about thinking about how we can how we can make just the economy as it is right now, more fair as a start, you know, and maybe getting to something Yang esque later, I think is, is a yeah. really good place for the conversation, right? So, like at very minimum, we are going to have to at some point guarantee um, a living wage to people in this country because it is too expensive to live in this country with no money. It is very, very expensive to be in poverty in this country. And I'm one of those weirdos that thinks that we should essentially eliminate poverty in this country and that it is achievable. Um, I think if we were to do that kind of at that high end of the pie in the sky, you know, what do we really want in life? I think that is what would actually lead us to the kinds of revolutions we're talking about with people really being creative, starting new businesses, trying to fix the environment, fixing the economy. Those things would be allowed to happen. You know, I think as a key example right now, you've got 23 million people out of work in this country, and the government is trying to force people to go back to work. But the problem is is that there aren't any jobs. And so if instead of forcing people to go back to work by essentially taking taking their livelihoods away from them and saying, okay, you're on your own, go for it. Instead of that, if we continued to pay people money and we said, here's some money to rebuild the economy with, start a business and if you do, I won't tax you on it. And if you don't, I'll tax you on it just as any other income and please spend it any way you would like and give everybody that money and imagine what might happen. Now, the problem with that, of course, I think a lot of people would go get a job, right? I think some people might think like, oh, everybody's going to be lazy at home. No, 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 no. They're going to be fixing up their home. They're going to be going on massive vacations. They're going to be buying Mercedes. They're going to be blowing up the economy, essentially, with money everywhere. And then it'll all be gone when it cuts off. But some people, which would be good, right? Then everybody's back to where they were. But some people will have started the next whatever, and they will not have to have done it starving to death or being evicted in the middle of a pandemic. And so I think like, yeah. there are things that we could be doing. You know, $15 minimum wage would be, would be just a really adorable yeah. start to solving this problem. But I think, you know politically speaking, that, that's really what needs to happen. Now, you're going to ask, what well, like, is the actual challenge of getting there? The big challenge, honestly, is society. And you know, even things like $15 an hour minimum wage, people that work in the restaurant business are against that and i don't blame them you know they make a lot more money than that right now in the front of the house but the problem is that we just need to pay them more than 15 dollars an hour so you know it's really you know if their expertise is worth that money then then that will scale with a salary just like it does in any other position so the problem really is that human beings we don't value each other, and so I see somebody stocking the grocery shelf, or I see somebody mopping up at the bar, or I see somebody mixing the drink, and I think, oh they're, they're the help, right? And I go over here yeah. and i talk to the manager, the owner, right? Mm-hmm. I used to get this all the time. Oh, are you the owner? Are you the manager? Because I'm the white dude, right? That's mixing the drinks, right? And maybe, yeah, you know, it's just like, no, like that guy, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm just a bartender, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. so. The fact that we're all still in this weird place where we think it's appropriate to like judge somebody's service of us and leave them a tip and that's how they make their money and I get to like punish you and like Yeah. We're in bizarre world. So like when we start to talk about how to solve some of these problems, I think like just basic human decency would, would be a good one. Like we literally need to eliminate poverty and just say like if you have a job, then you need to make at least this much money. And if you can't pay that much money, maybe the business shouldn't exist. Like here's an idea. Maybe we shouldn't have as many restaurants as we have if they can't all pay people enough money because they're not making enough money to pay everybody. So maybe they shouldn't exist in the first place. And by allowing them to have cheaper labor, essentially what they're, we're allowing them to do is manipulate the economy and provide more supply than there is demand because it's advantageous for their capitalist system. Right? Yeah. That is bad for what we're actually trying to do in the world, right? So anything that we can do that actually levels the playing field, which is to say human beings are worth a certain amount of money an hour, period, right? That would be super, super powerful because it would put a lot of people out of business. And I know people say, Oh no, that's terrifying. But it isn't. Because if you were able to put people out of business that shouldn't be in business in the first place, folks, that those businesses shouldn't exist, it would open up an ungodly amount of real estate and assets for everybody to use for things that society actually wants. You now that sounds crazy, but it really is the way that things should go down. And this is why, you know, these generational businesses are the ones that are struggling right now. I mean, look at, you know, yeah. J.C. You know, I mean, things that have been around yeah. for a really long time—they're having our time. Small businesses are much, much more fluid, are much, much easier to change, much, much easier to pivot, and we want a country built of more of those. And so we should make it more advantageous to do that. And we could, you know? And and it's not just tax breaks, it's not just all that, it's literally like, make it easy to get the money. You know, make it easy and quick. Make it simple. Don't make it some arbitrary panel of weirdness, you know? Yeah. Make it approachable. Provide coaches for people, right? Like, mm. you know, the city should be investing in business coaches. They should be investing in, in how can we like build Dallas to make it a place where people actually want to come to to enjoy themselves. If this is what we're trying to do. So, so those are the things that I would worry about. Now, the problem, of course, is that the cities are all totally on the other direction right now, and municipal politics are about to blow up in a way we've never seen before. I don't even remember, yeah. but Detroit was allowed to go bankrupt and yeah. now detroit is owned almost entirely by like one billionaire and so <laughs> yeah. yeah libertarian wet yeah. dream right so like yeah. we're we're heading down that path very quickly because states and cities are not allowed to print money only the fed can do that and so yeah. if the fed decides that they don't want to lend money they don't want to bail these states out and that's what's looking like it's going to happen then we're looking at a lot of states going bankrupt and you know, that's going to do the opposite of what I'm talking about. That's going to consolidate everything. That's going to make yes. it harder, essentially. And so we really, really need to be working against that. And we really need to be working on localizing things and trying to make things flip generationally, essentially. Anything that we can do. And, and this is why the estate tax is really important. You no know, people are going to bitch and complain. Oh, I should be able to leave my money to my kids. No, you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Not all of it, because they didn't yeah. earn it. And be, what you're doing is displacing their valuable labor that they could be putting into actual ideas and moving things forward you're essentially tying them up into a place where they're going to have affluenza and not care about anybody and your business is going to die over time you become a dinosaur your customers are going to hate you your your people at work they're going to hate you and unfortunately your business will never die because it can't because it makes money because stock market and all of these weird things of the way that the world actually yeah. works, right? Because you own assets, yeah. because these things are real, you know. Because if you're a yeah. department store, you own that building and it's worth a ridiculous right. amount of money, you know. So it's like it's such a weird, such a weird place to be in. And so, yeah, people ask me all the time, like, okay, if you change, if you could change it, like, what would it be? And so right. I will tell you though, the the one thing that would that would really, truly help pushing in, in, in the direction um, that I'm talking about is is single payer healthcare. Because as soon yeah. as you can diver- divorce work and healthcare, then there's going to be a lot more people that are crazy like me that are going to be willing to get out there and take those risks. It's a For privilege. Sure. It's a privilege, truly. Not just white privilege, but it's health privilege. It's yeah. youth privilege, right? It's, it's yeah. the insanity privilege of thinking that you can do something that, that society is trying to make essentially impossible. That's a privilege, and we need to break all of that down. Right, and so whatever yeah. we can do to get there. But yeah, I think you know, healthcare. I guess if you want the easy answer. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. No, absolutely. Of course. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, every. I mean, all of that. All those points are 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 pointing to you know it it, it this whole situation has highlighted um, you know all of the basic underlying issues that have been festering in our economy and our country for over generations right um, and now we we're in this moment where um you know uh a, a corporate uh evolution is like we're staring at it like we're, we're i mean it is happening in real time in our faces and we are seeing the changes and shifts that usually take a decade to ch- to, to take totally um, and and yeah and it's you know and, and talking about these things openly and like this i think is really important especially in this kind of moment um, because we are moving so fast, right? Like the tide is moving and we, we have to figure out, you know, if you're a business owner or if you're in the industry or if you're doing anything right now, how are you gonna float in this river right now? And trying to, and, and, and the long-term game here is, how do we change policies to make this boat ride much easier, not just for yourself, <laughs> but for
1: everybody? Run right? for office. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody out there that's thinking about it, please, for love of God, do it's, it's. you know how many votes it takes to get on city council here? You want to guess? Do you have any idea? What three? It's like <laughs> so it's 50? like five thousand. I mean, it's like you know. Yeah. It was like nothing. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, it's just like hundreds I, or thousands, depending on your district. I'm, I mean, like it is nothing.
0: For sure, if anyone becomes like an influencer in any way, they could probably pull that off. You yes. Know, they're just, yes. Like a mildly, a mildly Well, they always think that, but then,
1: but then trying to get, you know, trying to get people to actually come out and vote, and again, make voting easier. Make it compulsory. Make
0: voting easier, yeah.
1: Find people for not voting, like they do in Australia, and 96% of people come out and vote, because they don't want to pay yeah. like the 25 bucks or whatever it costs if you yeah. don't, yeah. right? Yeah. Do instant runoff voting so that you guarantee that my vote isn't wasted. Force me to vote and then guarantee that it'll be counted in a way that is accurate and represents what I actually think. But who does that benefit? Yeah. So how do we do that, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, so we have to be the government if we want to do that. And it really, you know, I, I'm thinking that the real benefit here, Arnie, is that if, if you know, we're, we're around the same age, so we came up in in the society where kids were influenced to join clubs and become leaders and start movements and. We're internet people. We're born with this stuff around us, and yeah. so I am very, 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 very optimistic that Gen Z and you know the younger millennials essentially are setting up a football, and either they're going to run it down, or you know, in Gen Z is going to pick it up, or it'll be the next one. You know, but yeah. I really do feel like now that um, because of the internet, essentially, and because of the yeah. hyperconnectivity, and just because yeah. information information has been let out, you know what I mean. You can't lie yeah. anymore about stuff. Not. <laughs> Fake news, right? But yeah, you know, things yeah. have changed. For, for those of us that really want to know, you can't hide it anymore. Like it, it it's yeah. changed, and so I feel like that. You know, we're having an intellectual revolution in this country again, and I do think that this is what's going to lead us to the future. Is it more people talking about more things and more openness of information? It really is opening Pandora's box, making things simpler and simpler, and making the old way less competitive changing to a new version essentially if we make old capitalism less competitive ergo we don't like what they're selling as much then they will immediately start selling something different mm. but if it's all of our friends that are already selling that thing and we just buy from them instead now they have all of the power and i know that sounds like totally hippie-dippy but it is also 100 true yeah. and organizing that will be the power of the internet and the power of hopefully, some smart kids in the next generation. For sure.
0: I think uh, that's a perfect way to leave this. Um, I mean, I think that's a that's a great point. And personally, myself, I am a huge optimist. Like, I don't look, I don't know what's going to happen in this country in the next few months. Um, I, I, I've already reserved myself to the fact the next three months are going to be crazy. Regardless <laughs> of that. Regardless of that. Look, I'm going to still be around. I'm pretty sure you're still going to be around into the next year. And I do believe that the younger generations, you and me, um, we have definitely, we have the tools to really change this world. And I think there is enough optimism and care. And and I think there's enough empathy um, just with those people to really carry us into something really, really, really nice, really big, and really successful for everyone. It's gonna be long, it's gonna be hard, <laughs> but I am forever yeah. an optimist because I believe that we are better and that we are always going to continue to be better.
1: I, um, I, I agree with you, I agree. Well, thank you so much for having me on and I, um, I try to make myself very open and available for people. So you can check out my website, I'm at sethbrammer.com or seth at sethbrammer.com if you're into email. And I think Instagram is Seth Brammer. basically you type my name and there's only one other person in the country with a name. It's very easy to find me. I've got the hair. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know and, and really, I'm very interested in in more and more people um, pushing forward on these same kinds of ideas. And so you know open invitation if anybody uh, wants to talk about those things and needs help making that happen. that that's that's what we do. So thank you so much, Arnie. I really appreciate it. and, and let's do this again sometime. This was really fun. Yeah. great questions. I really appreciated it. Thanks for it's the opportunity pretty. for a platform.
0: Hey, thank you. Thank you for coming to my humble small podcast. <laughs> yeah, for really sure. Well, hey, we'll, we'll blow it up, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do a couple more yeah. of these. You'll have... <laughs> for sure. For sure. A couple, yeah. Um, thank you so much for watching. Um, uh, if you need uh, anything from me, I am at just com or rnediaz89 at everything. Um, Seth, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Uh, we will do this again for sure.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Right. Thanks so much.
0: Sure thing.